Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan, and we're recording our lucky 13th episode, The Morning After Halloween, a potentially ominous combination, but hey, we're risk takers. Uh, I went trick-or-treating last night, dressed up as someone who's good at picking NFL games against the spread. Uh, What did you dress up as, John? Uh, that's a good one, but uh, I dressed up as the most out-of-place Halloween night visitor of the Scottsdale, Arizona Entertainment District in about 20 years. <laughs> Came in from a Newark flight from hell maybe uh, nine or ten hours ago. Finally settle in, and uh, the hotel clerk suggests I walk over to the club district if I want to get a bite to eat or, or to drink. Uh, yeah, I'm 57, and I forgot it was Halloween. <laughs> so <laughs> I was expecting to hear, hey, the 80s called. They want their dude back. you know. But uh, <laughs> the people were very nice, and I slinked back to the desolate hotel bar where I belong and made it a good night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And we get ourselves another one of our patented episodes of, uh, of uh, Johnny on the Road uh, for the Gamble On podcast, which is always fun. All right. Well, thank you to everybody out there for joining us for episode number 13. You can find any of our previous 12 episodes on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Please leave us five-star ratings and glowing reviews. Uh, and click the subscribe button. That's the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. All right, Eric, this is the point of the podcast. I'll, I'll usually tell you who we have scheduled as a guest, but we unfortunately had a last-minute cancellation this week. So there will be an interview segment, though. It'll be something very different than usual, and I hope you like it. Uh, Eric will interview me about my long career in journalism. I'll interview him about his 2014 poker book that was back in the news this week. So we'll kind of be our own podcast guest this week. But first, we have a busy news week ahead to talk about, too. So let's uh, start the show. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Every few hours, it seems, there's a new sponsorship deal or some other sort of partnership being signed between a sports team or league and a casino or online gambling site. So our first news story this week groups together all of the action on that front in the past week. I'm not going to go into deep detail on any of these. I'll just kind of list them. Uh, We had the NHL following the NBA's lead and entering into a partnership with MGM. We had the New Jersey Devils first partnering with William Hill, then making a deal with Caesars as well. 
We had the New York Jets uh, sort of tiptoeing around the lines of what the NFL does and doesn't allow by reportedly accepting advertising from 888, then announcing a deal with MGM. And uh, just this morning, a couple of hours before we started recording, Caesars and the Oakland Raiders, uh, soon to be the Las Vegas Raiders, announced a 15-year partnership. Uh, geez, John, uh, are these sports teams uh, ever going to figure out a way to make money off of sports betting? Uh, yeah, the deals are really flying in now, aren't they? Um, kind of makes me uh, nostalgic for 2012 when uh, U.S. History Court Judge uh, Michael Shipp ruled that uh, there had to be an injunction against Monmouth Park offering sports betting because and that's a high bar. You know, normally you can do something until the court rules against you and then you're out of the business. But they couldn't even start because the judge found that there would be irreparable harm to all the sports leagues if New Jersey, even for, say, three months, added the same sports betting that Nevada had. <laughs> so uh, um, that didn't pan out, it appears. I don't know any of the leagues uh, crying, crying broke here. Um, so that's just how it was. The NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, in fact, was very vehement about that, too, that th there's no way that you know the, these leagues can survive this, uh, this onslaught. And now here we are. So uh, as far as NHL and MGM, I, I was interested by this one because it seems a little different than the previous NBA deal with MGM, which is just – Sort of like, you know, hey, we get logos for our sports book. Uh, the right. NHL says they already was working on proprietary data. I suspect something like, for instance, you know, who will record the fastest slap shot of the game? Uh, and now only licensed partners like uh, MGM are going to be have access to this. So, you know, if millennials warm to those sort of things, then if you don't all your risk not only losing that bet, but then maybe all the business, right? The, the guy wants to make that bet, wants to make that bet. And then um, they got to go over to MGM for that one. Well, they might as well just do all their betting there. So that seems like a sensible free market, free enterprise concept here. If you, if you want to have actual proprietary data, not who won the game, we know who won the game, but stuff like that. And uh, if you want on it as a, as a partner, you got to pay for it. Uh, I think that's reasonable. You know, as far as the devils and the, and the two suitors, and there's going to be more there also at Prudential Center. Right. Uh, this is where exclusivity has lost some cachet in the sports business world, obviously. You know, they're each going to have their own lounge of sorts, each have its own promotions. I only thought is that, especially with more on the way, I think, is a potential red flag. I mean, if you're a diehard Devils fan, season ticket holder, and you have no interest in gambling, which is plenty of those season ticket holders, are you going to be turned off by making it seem like, you know, I'm in a uh, casino here. I'm, mm. I thought I was coming to watch a hockey game. So they'll have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's something uh, indeed to, to keep an eye on. Um, the NHL announcement really stood out uh, most to me uh, because of them distancing themselves from uh, these integrity fees or whatever uh, nomenclature different leagues at different moments want to use to describe them. Um, but it, it's just hilarious to me that any of these leagues are still asking for so-called integrity fees when we see all these deals they're able to make, uh, wh whether it's the league or the individual teams. Uh, it's, you know, it's like it's like being a Red Sox fan. And while the World Series parade is going on, you're fixated on some game the bullpen blew in July and you're ticked off because they should have won 109 regular regular season games, not 108. That's that's what it's like right now for any league to be worrying about getting their cut with integrity fees. So I, good for the NHL for completely distancing itself from that nonsense. You know, t take advantage of all these opportunities and, uh, and this free money uh, and embrace it. This is the new post-PASPA world. Uh, there are many more deals to be made. This is just the start, clearly. Well, the NHL is right in the middle, right? You have... Uh saying no integrity fee, but we will have proprietary data. You know, right. uh, NFL and NCA want to say we the league say we, we get it for an integrity fee, but they're just saying we want a cut of the action. You know, uh, here at least 
as I say, if, if they can offer something that you can't get somewhere else and it's a sort of prop bet that is, is really fine and you really like and the leagues can then leverage that to make more money. That's fine. I think that's free enterprise. A uh, last one on the Cowboys uh, or the Jets, rather. Uh, they remind me of the Cowboys and Jerry Jones. You know, they like to push the gaming envelope a little bit. I wonder if the league will be kind of fine with a couple of canaries in the coal mine. Just see what happens. And if there's anybody left in the NFL who really thinks that, oh, my gosh, if we partner with these, we're going to lose our season ticket holders. Um, they can find out otherwise from the uh, Jets and Cowboys. Right. All right. Moving on to our second story this week. Uh, DFS players in New York had a nervous moment on Monday when a judge in the state's Supreme Court ruled that DFS contests are a form of illegal gambling. We've been through this before. In 2015, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman tried to basically run DraftKings and FanDuel out of the state, and their business became uncertain in several other states as well. Uh, But it felt like we'd moved past that until Monday. Uh, However, the upshot of this ruling isn't much. Popular opinion among those in the know is that DFS will continue throughout the appeals process. And before that process is over, New York will probably have passed sports betting laws that cover DFS. So it might all be much ado about nothing. What do you think, John? Will this ruling have any impact on New Yorkers uh, or anyone's uh, ability to play daily fantasy? Well, it's reasonable to think that, well, New York State will just fix the problem. Um, they did do that on the Schneiderman issue. You know, he right declares it illegal, scares off FanDuel and DraftKings for a short time. Within a few months, the legislature actually, you know, got up on its hind legs and, and changed the law. And then he was forced to defend the new law because that's what an attorney general does. <laughs> right. um, so that's a little strange. So in theory, yeah, they can just make this fix also. But, you know, New York State five years ago allowed four new casinos to open. And part of the uh, authorization was, oh, and by the way, they can have sports betting if the federal laws overturned at any point. So that was five or six months ago. And mm-hmm. the state hasn't even imposed the proper regulations for it to move forward. You know, I know from having been up at the Catskills Casino uh, a month or two ago, um, they're losing money every month. They need they need all they can get. And the other three casinos are not bringing in the revenue numbers they're supposed to either. So you would expect a sense of urgency there. And I don't see it. So if I were the DFS people, I wouldn't, uh, you know, guarantee myself, oh, well, New York legislature will take care of it right away because they're very efficient. I don't see that. Right. Yeah. My my main reaction to to this news is just to sort of try to look at things logically and note that obviously DFS is gambling. You know, (laughs) it's a game of skill. Yes, but it's a form of gambling as much as sports betting, poker, etc. The DFS companies fought so hard for so long to have it perceived as different than sports betting. And then PASPA got overturned and they dropped that nonsense. Um, Eventually, this may still be many years away, but eventually we should reach a point where any state that allows DFS allows sports betting and any state that allows sports betting allows DFS. uh, And FanDuel and DraftKings, of course, let you bet at their sports books on how many fantasy points an individual player will score. If that doesn't tell you that these activities are different forms of the same general activity, uh, I, I don't know what will. Yeah, I, that, that wouldn't be a bad uh, thing to have to finally clarify this, because those of us on the outside are always like, look, we're not necessarily knocking DFS or anything else. But this idea that, well, you're putting up an entry fee and you're risking money, but it's different from when you bet on the game because you have two players from two different teams. You know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really threading the needle. <laughs> yeah, that was all to basically take advantage of a loophole back before sports betting was allowed in those states. As any state allows sports betting, I feel like uh, DFS should, should certainly just fall under the same umbrella. Okay, so for our final story this week, uh, and this is in some ways the most significant of the three stories we're covering, 
the Nevada September numbers for sports betting are out. And I think it's safe to say that David Reebuck would find these numbers stunning. Uh, <laughs> sports betting handle was $571 million. The sportsbooks won $56.3 million. Both of those are single-month records. Gaming Control Board Senior Research Analyst Michael Lawton spoke to U.S. Bets' Brian Pempis this week and told him he wasn't anticipating a new record. He was surprised by how high the numbers were, and he thinks the national expansion of sports betting was good for Nevada, that it raised awareness of sports betting. Uh, so while some in Nevada spent years, decades, dreading sports betting becoming available outside the state— the first month of football season in a post-PASPA world suggests it's actually to Nevada's benefit that they're not the only game in town anymore. Uh, imagine that. The sky isn't falling after all. Uh, anything about these Nevada numbers surprise you, John? Well, look at the parallel. The two, the two, two entities that were going to be devastated, by, according to the mainstream press, by legalization of sports betting uh, around the country were Nevada sports books and illegal bookies. You know, oh, they're in big trouble. They're on the run. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's not true. We've talked about uh, illegal bookies before. They're never going away. Uh, Nevada's not going under by any means either. Uh, I will say I agree with one panelist's point when I was at the recent uh, Global Gaming Expo in Las Vegas last month that uh, the Supreme Court and March Madness they draw countless Northeasterners every year. They travel across the country, you know, four or five hour flight. I think I think plenty of them will still fly to Las Vegas to relive those past escapades. You know, they've been going with their buddies five or 10 years and they have, you know, a great time every time. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, you know, how many will figure, well, we could just drive to Atlantic City. You know, that leaves us with much bigger bankroll. So that could be tempting. I, I, I do think it bears watching. And my hunch is that uh, Nevada is just fine. The Vegas Sportsbook do just fine anyway. But, um, you know, Atlantic City casinos in mid-2000s figured, well, no one from New York and Pennsylvania is going to stop going here because uh, we have more casinos and we have better shows and we have better restaurants and shopping. And then uh, New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians, yeah, they didn't they didn't keep going to Atlantic City necessarily. So uh, I don't think Nevada can quite relax yet, but I, I have a hunch they're, they're still going to be fine. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point, the Atlantic City uh, comparison with Pennsylvania and New York and, and all that, that there could be some people who used to take an annual trip to Vegas or whatever, who won't do that now if they're on the East Coast. Uh, um, but I, I think, I guess the, the broader point is that what they're losing in terms of people coming in from out of town gets balanced a, a little bit by just this general awareness of, of sports betting and the, sports betting being such a buzzword everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, this is obviously one month, uh, the first month of, of football season. People are always going to be excited. Um so, yeah, we can't uh, can't extrapolate too far based on just the September numbers. Uh, you're right that we need to sort of wait and see. But in the end, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, the, the, the city of Las Vegas uh, going out of business to, uh, on account of sports betting opening up elsewhere. Uh, the, the football numbers specifically in Nevada um, were very big and, and were more like what I expected to see in New Jersey, that more than 68 percent of the handle uh, in Nevada came from football um, and people did a bad job betting on football. The the hold was 11.4%. Um, although I think that will be coming down in October, as we know, the books have taken some losses the last couple of weeks. It'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and here's just one more uh, fun fact to attach uh, to, to this here. Uh, according to the numbers from Nevada, the state's hold on parlay bets 
was 60.6% of the handle in September. Uh, You've said it several times, John. Parlay bets uh, are rarely as good as they seem on paper. Uh, I actually am guilty of making one in New Jersey last week. I did five NFL games on the money line, a couple of big favorites, a couple of even money-ish games. Would have paid about nine to one. And of course, four out of the five hit. Uh, Parlay bets are sucker bets. I was the sucker, and it looks like Nevada found a lot of suckers last month. Yeah, I I had a regulator once tell me, and it kind of shocked me. It made me take pause. But that if Nevada tomorrow was told, the books out there were told, you can't take uh, straight up bets anymore. You can only do parlays. They would start thinking about that and think, wow, the volume we lose is massive. But the percentage profit we get is incredible. And if people are forced into parlays, some of them will not just give up, they'll settle for parlays. Right. And um, he said he said they would do just fine with only parlays if they had to. <laughs> it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. As John noted at the top of the show, we're doing something quite different this week with the interview segment due to a very short notice cancellation. But you get two interviews for the price of one, as uh, as John will conduct a mini interview with me, and then I'll conduct a mini interview with him. All right, mini. I mean, Eric, sorry. Uh, <laughs> in 2013, on the, on the 10th anniversary of Chris Moneymaker's win at the World Series of Poker, yeah, that obviously ignited the poker boom. Uh, I think most of our listeners know all about that. Uh, you wrote an oral history of the event for Grantland.com and expanded into a book called The Moneymaker Effect that was released in 2014. And I understand last week ESPN released a 30 for 30 podcast uh, called All In, Sparking the Poker Boom, uh, which covered obviously the same subject. Um, I hear the folks behind it reached out a couple days before it went up and let you know it was coming and that your book uh, helped guide them making it. Um, so you're the top reviewer for this. What do you think of the podcast? Having <laughs> literally written the book on the subject. Um, well, <laughs> I thought uh, I thought the reporter, Keith Romer, did an excellent job telling the story. It was very well constructed. Um, but if people were hoping to hear anything new that wasn't covered in my book, they didn't really get it. Uh, and that's no slight on Romer. Uh there just might not be anything new to tell about this story anymore. Um, He did get one detail right that I got wrong. Uh, In the last few years, Chris Moneymaker revised his story. He always used to say uh, that it started with a $39 online satellite, but PokerStars came out with proof a few years ago that it was actually an $86 satellite. So Chris has admitted that he misremembered it uh, when telling the story uh, initially. So on the podcast, they got it right uh, that it was the $86 uh, qualifier. Uh, Romer also got one interview that I couldn't uh, with Johnny Chan. I tried to line up that interview for my oral history, but I just couldn't track Johnny down. And I was kind of okay with it because Johnny isn't a great quote typically. But still, he was important to the story. I would have liked to have had him and and Romer got him. Um, But other than that, most of what I was hearing on the podcast was in my book. Um, And in many cases, the interview subjects were even wording their quotes exactly the same. Um, But that was kind of fun for me. That was fun to hear these voices saying a lot of these same things again that they had uh, told me several years ago. Yeah. Well, I'm just shocked the guy named Moneymaker couldn't keep track of exactly how much he spent. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So speaking of speaking of Moneymaker, uh, you know, we're looking 15 years uh, back now. How important would you say Moneymaker winning specifically, him specifically, was to the poker boom hap- happening? So as I cover in my book, there were four main factors in the poker boom taking off in 2003. Uh, the whole card camera making poker interesting for television 
ESPN making this seven-episode commitment to the WSOP for the first time that year, online poker starting to take off at the same time, and the amateur named Moneymaker winning. It, it was some combination of all four of those factors, and, and that's taking away pre-boom factors like the movie Rounders coming out in 98 and becoming a, a very popular over the next few years that helped make all the other stuff possible. But focusing on like what happened in, in 2003, of those four factors, I do think Moneymaker winning was important, um, but I also would say it was probably the least important of the four. Uh, as people at ESPN have noted, the ratings for the 2003 World Series were shockingly high right out of the gate, and Moneymaker didn't appear until episode three. The ratings were already huge for episodes one and two. Um, in 2003, the World Series main event had 839 entrants, and the next year it tripled to more than 2,500 Moneymaker definitely had something to do with that. He gave all the dreamers reason to dream. A lot of the bad players who took a shot in 04 or 05, they did so because of Moneymaker. But if Moneymaker doesn't play in 2003 and Phil Ivey wins or Sam Farha wins or Dutch Boyd wins, with all those other factors, I bet we still get to about 1,800 or, or maybe 2,000 entrants in, in 2004. That's that's my guess as to um, the sort of the numerical impact of, of specifically Chris Moneymaker winning. Yeah, I thought the uh, back at that time the the whole card revealing and also the odds of winning, you know, as each card's revealed, you know, for a casual poker player, they understand that bluffing's a big part of the game and understand that people fold with good hands all the time. But this really underscored it. You got a, a veteran pro and he's up to 86% chance of winning, and a guy who's drawing dead and he's putting a bunch of chips in, and the 86% guy folds, and you're like, wow, that's <laughs> that's rough, you know. And to see how often the player who won the hand did not. Not only didn't have the best hand, they might have had no hand, but uh, right. it, it, it something vaguely vaguely familiar to casual poker players, but it really drove it home. Like, wow, these guys are not just sitting around hoping that they get the best cards, otherwise they can't win. They can win many different ways. Yeah, and it, and it was some combination of those whole card cameras letting everyone, making the strategy accessible, letting people into everybody's minds. But then on top of that, uh, seeing that on a couple of occasions, Chris Moneymaker got really lucky, like misplayed a hand, uh, you know, got all in with pocket eights against pocket aces one time and hit his eight. Things like that that, uh, you know, give keep the dream alive for the guy who isn't that, that good yet. And I'm not knocking Moneymaker's play. Uh, he's admitted he, you know, wasn't a great player yet uh, at the time, but um, but he did play pretty well most of what we saw, but also really slipped up a couple of times and, and got bailed out by sheer luck, which uh, so that that it all combines to kind of give the viewing audience an understanding of poker and maybe a false sense of, wow, I can go out there and beat the pros. Well, we saw that with the entry numbers, didn't we? <laughs> yep, we sure did. All right. Uh, my turn to interview you now, John. Uh, you've been uh, you've been writing about gambling in one form or another going back to 2002. I'm curious, what was the first gambling story you covered? And could you have imagined that you'd later make a full career out of it? 
Uh, yeah, well, at that time, uh, working at the Bergen Record newspaper in northern New Jersey, uh, I switched over to kind of a news side beat that, that was a hybrid with sports. So I was going to cover the Meadowland Sports Complex, what kind of new development they were going to put in there, uh, but also some fun and game stuff uh, like lottery winners, Atlantic City, and all that. And it just so happened that right out of the gate, uh, there were a couple of huge winners, hundreds of millions of dollars in New Jersey right away. Um, so those were fun stories to do. And then Borgata Casino was already under construction. You know, this was going to be the first Las Vegas-style casino in Atlantic City. So it was a big deal. So that opened in 2003. Um, there was sort of an arms race in Atlantic City. Um, all the rivals spent hundreds of millions of dollars to up, upgrade their properties to make sure they could keep up with the Joneses. And, and the the, uh, the market was still booming. And then 2006, of course, Pennsylvania and New York opened casinos. And then at that point, I'm also doing the struggles of horse racing, the push for online poker, uh, the 2011 sports betting referendum, uh, push for Meadowlands Casino. So, uh, you know, every year of that you know, 15 years or so, there were plenty of um, gambling stories as part of my beat. It wasn't initially going to be as big a part of my beat, but uh, but it just proved too good to be true. And also, there were so many aspects of it that were really not being covered, horse racing being the first one. You know, there were no reporters left in Trenton, basically, you know, trying to figure out, are the tracks going to stay open? So I had started a Meadowlands Matters blog in 2010 and kind of left me unfettered. I could cover all this. I didn't have to find room for it in a, in a dead tree newspaper. Mm. And so I, I developed a lot of following there. Any insider could see the, the, the gambling expansion boom coming for years anyway. So, yeah, by early 2017, I was already in discussions about making some sort of a transition. And uh, now here I am. Okay. So uh, in, in, in the early days, this wasn't necessarily where you saw things going, but uh, before, before it happened, before uh, we both uh, joined this team in 2018, you did see the writing on the wall. Uh, well, yeah, it was a perfect uh, storm where you had a topic that was going not only through the state of New Jersey, but it's going to go national. There's an international flavor, um, and there's very few traditional media left to cover it. So the right. opening, the vacuum's there, and, and we just, we're just filling it, that's all. Yep. All right. Now, uh, you uh, did not write a book that I can ask you about, but I understand that you have appeared uh, in both a book and a movie. Uh, so, you know, I'm getting to know my podcast partner after a few months of doing this together. Uh, so tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about, about both the book and the movie that you appeared in. Yeah, the, the book is very bittersweet, and the uh, movie was a bit of a farce. But um, <laughs> yeah, about 25, oh, geez, 20, what, 25 years ago, I can't believe 25 years ago, uh, I was covering the New Jersey Nats basketball team, and uh, they had a great player named Drazen Petrovic, um, mm -hmm. uh, basically the Michael Jordan of Europe, they called him. He was the, one of the first Europeans to come over and first European guard to come over and be a major star. And I mean, the way the league is shaped today has something to do with Drazen Petrovic paving the way. And um so I, I covered that 92-93 season, and uh, for the for the book, I, uh, an Australian author wrote it. You know, I was kind of trying to give him inside stuff that only the beat guys would really know. You know, one was that uh, a famous Sports Illustrated writer had come along and was interested in the Petrovic story. So uh, Drazen was giving him hours at a time, sometimes after practice, you know, visiting his condo. All, you know, all kinds of stuff that we're not really going to get access to as beat guys. And, you know, we got Bigfooted a little bit, but what are you going to do? It happens. Um, but the thing is, he he did a few of those interviews, and then uh, Sports Illustrated came back and said, well, you know, we need more. And he said, no. He goes, I'm, I'm already giving you uh, more time than I probably should compared to these beat guys who are traveling the country with me. You know, you got enough, and that's the end of it. I kind of appreciated that hmm. sort of uh, loyalty. And uh, one other one is something that would now actually be a, a sports betting uh, tie-in. But um, – uh, the final game of that regular season in Detroit was a meaningless game. The Nets and Pistons had clinched their, their playoff spots, as sometimes happens. So there's not much for us to do. And I had figured out that he had a chance to win the uh, three-point uh, uh, 
shooting accuracy title. Uh, I could see that B.J. Armstrong in Chicago, he's probably not going to try one, right? He's in the lead. Let somebody else catch him. Mm. And I figured out that if Drazen made two out of three, uh, that would be enough to pull him ahead, and then he might want to stop. So I'm just telling another writer, the rookie writer, and he goes down in the, in the uh, locker room before the game, so we have access to the NBA players, and uh, he tells Drazen the story. I'm like, no, 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 we're not trying to get, you know, we're not trying to distract the guy. Now, admittedly, it was a meaningless game, but still. Right. So back then, and this tells you how long ago it was, we actually sat courtside. So next to the uh, broadcasters and, and official scorers, you can, I mean, we're two feet from the court, center court. And um, uh, so we're sitting there. So Drazen misses the first one, and he makes the second one. So then he looks over to me and this rookie B writer, and he says, so one more, I need one more. And we're, I'm not, look, I'm like, I'm not, you know, the old writer doesn't want to be part of the story. I'm like, the guy is asking me, you know, what he needs to win some. I like, I don't want to be involved with this. Yeah. So, um, so that, you know, was a, was a fun moment. And, uh, uh, not even two months later, he was killed in a car crash in, uh, in Germany on the Autobahn. Um, so, um, that's why it was so bittersweet. It, I have fond memories of him and, and, and all he did, but, uh, you know, it's, I still can't believe, uh, he's gone like that. It's, uh, kind of a tragedy. As far as the movie goes, um, as I say, that's farce. Um, it's called Soprano State, I think from 2010, uh, History of Corruption in New Jersey, Part One or something like that as a subhead. Um, it was kind of a comic documentary about all the weird hijinks that have occurred with New Jersey, mostly politicians, elected officials getting uh, arrested, not only getting convicted of corruption, which happens in a lot of states, but um, but odd, how odd it was. You know, uh, I mentioned the Meadowland Sports Complex. Um, there's a project there that uh, they started planning in 2002 when I, when I, when I uh, joined the news side, and it hasn't opened yet, but it's uh, going to open next year. I swear, 17 years it's going to open. Um, it's multicolored and um, it's stalled a lot and three or four developers and there's going to be an in- indoor skiing. And um, yeah, it's kind of offbeat. But uh, so that was one of the topics of the movie. And then another was there was a golf and housing project uh, planned in the Meadowlands, which basically the, the garbage dumps that you see on the Sopranos opening scenes, you know, and right. they had a couple episodes there, I think. Um, they were going to build half a million dollar condos there and like a grand golf course that uh, that was going to rival St. Andrews in Scotland. Yeah. So that didn't happen. And the thing about that was in the last six months, they had a, a developer come in uh, with a big name to try to see if he could uh, draw in some more development dollars. And um, I remember his name, Donald Trump. I, I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> he dropped off the face of the earth. But but it was an interesting uh, time anyway. So that got in the movie, too. So, uh, yeah, that was fun. The, the debut was in uh, – uh, the premiere was at the Ziegfeld Theater in Manhattan, which is now closed. But so you got a thousand people there. You know, Governor Christie's there. People in tuxes and after party at Patsy's. You know, the whole nine yards. So it was a, uh, it was fun. And then the movie sank without a trace in the theaters about two weeks later. But it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just glad the story doesn't end with you uh, disappearing in the Pine Barrens. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, for the two of us interviewing uh, each other, that wasn't too terribly awkward. Uh, I'll, I'll, sure. I'll take it. <laughs> sure. Two men, $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. All right, we will get to the Fast Five shortly, but we start, as always, with our shared bankroll, where we went three for four for the second consecutive week. If we can keep that up, we'll be millionaires. Uh, You split your two college football bets. Uh, Arizona State at plus six and a half was a win. Uh, In fact, they won outright. You keep missing these money line opportunities, John. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Um, But we took a heartbreaking loss on Navy. You got them at plus 21 and a half against Notre Dame, and they lost by 22. uh, Eric, it's, it's worse than that. Okay. Uh, Notre Dame's up fifteen. Notre Dame's up fifteen midway through the fourth quarter, and they're in red zone, but it's third and seven. 
So if they kick the field goal, then they're up 18. There's no yeah. reason for them to score again. Even right. if they're driving late in the game, they'd rather just hold on to the ball than do anything. And if they had, you know, fourth and goal at the 20 or something, they could kick a field goal and go up 21. Not a problem. <laughs> I can live with that too. Third and seven, they complete the touchdown and go up 22. Navy drives down to run a 30-yard line twice later in the game. Uh, but, of course, they're only going to go for a touchdown. They, they're not going to save me with a field goal or even a safety. Right. <laughs> but uh, that's the way it goes. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been the Gamble on Bad Beats segment. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, but on the other hand, our luck evened out a, a bit in the Chiefs-Broncos game uh, where I took under 53 and a half points. The score was 30 to 20, just three seconds into the fourth quarter. Uh, I was sure we were going to lose that one. And somehow only one field goal scored after that. The final was 30 to 23, allowing us to hit the under by a half point. And uh, that field goal also helped me get a fast five pick right as I had Denver to cover the nine point spread. So a bit of a miracle there. Um, And in our fourth wager of the week, my women's boxing bet was a winner. So uh, we won $190 for the week, meaning that we are, uh, I believe, for the first time officially in the black, uh, not counting what we have tied up in futures bets. Uh, I think this merits uh, trumpets blasting. So we're up $180 now with $1,520 locked up in futures bets, leaving us $8,660 available this week. And I'm up first. And with our futures bet on Todd Gurley to win MVP all the way down from plus 1800 when we got it to plus 450 now, I think it's time to hedge a little. Uh, we have $50 on Gurley to win 900 I think it's worth risking another hundred dollars at plus 275 odds on Patrick Mahomes on play sugar house. Uh, If Gurley wins, we profit $800 instead of $900 due to the hedge. If Mahomes wins, we still profit $225 overall. We could certainly still get screwed on a Drew Brees win or a Tom Brady win or someone unlikely making a huge run in the second half of the season. But I think our bases are fairly well covered with the star running back of the only 8-0 team in the league and the quarterback of the only 7-1 team in the league, both of whom have the highest yardage and touchdown totals in the NFL at their respective positions. I'm tempted to maybe put a few bucks on Brady also, as he's currently plus 1,200, uh, but I'll hold off for now and, and just hedge a little bit with Mahomes. That makes a lot of sense. The only problem is if the uh, Saints upset the Rams, right? Then uh, Breeze has uh, got got a chance. But uh, you're yep. probably not going to pick that uh, later. We'll see. <laughs> so bet number two, uh, I, I love Georgia minus nine and a half against Kentucky college football. Uh, I'll jump up to 165 to win 150. Uh, Kentucky got the miracle win last weekend. They're at home. The world can still be their oyster, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Bulldogs have the experience and the confidence. And a big win here is crucial to their own hope. So uh, sorry, Wildcat fans. This is not going to be pretty. Okay, and I like bumping up the bets. Instead of the standard 110, we're going 165. A little little extra gamble in you this week. All right, for my next bet, betting the under is not fun, uh, despite the fact that last week's Chief Broncos sweat worked out for us. Betting the over is fun, so we're having fun again this week. I think the line of 51 points in the Chiefs-Browns game is a tad low. Chiefs games are averaging more than 61 points this season. I don't see Cleveland slowing down their offense much, especially with new coaches in place. The Chiefs might get to 51 all by themselves, uh, but more likely I see them putting up yeah, 35 or 40, and the Kansas City defense is very torchable, so I think the Browns can put some points on the board too. I'm betting 110 to win 100 on the over. 
All right, sounds good. Uh, I'll go uh, LSU with 13 and a half against Alabama. Uh, I'll make that a mere 110 because it's Bama. Um, but I get Death Valley in a team that just doesn't get blown out in these spots, and uh, I'm looking to hang on here. I, I picture that spread going or going either way on the final TD of the game. So I'll just hope it's in my favor. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a good spot to make the smaller uh, dollar amount bet then uh, on that one. All right. And we wrap up with the fast five. After week seven, you were 18, 16, and one. I was 13, 19, and three. But my very slow comeback continues as I went three and two and you went two and three in week eight. Uh, The Lions screwed us both. Uh, As noted, I got a little lucky uh, with the Denver cover while you were the beneficiary of Todd Gurley staying out of the end zone at the end of the Rams Packers game. Uh, So that would have been the worst beat. That would have been the worst beat of the year. (laughs) That was a 58 minute Packers cover. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been rough. Yeah, that would have been. But uh, but Gurley saved you. He was playing. He wasn't playing for the fantasy players or the sports betters. As he said, he was he was playing for the Rams. Um, So the week uh, ultimately came down to our one head-to-head, which I I won, uh, but I won't call this one a route, as I mistakenly did last week, and you called me out on it, Uh, but Washington beat the Giants. Uh, There was no uh, dead cat bounce for you there, so you're still in the lead at 20, 19, and 1. I'm up to 16, 21, and 3 as we near the halfway point of the season, and I'm up first this week, Um, and this was kind of a tough week, but I found exactly five games that I feel pretty good about using the Westgate opening lines. First, I like the Chiefs as eight-and-a-half-point favorites on the road against the Browns. Uh, I'm off of my, well, the Browns always keep it close mentality after last week, especially against this Kansas City team. Even on the road, I think eight-and-a-half is a little low to me, so I like the Chiefs. My second game is one that I predict we're going to have in common. I could be wrong. I'll find out in a couple of minutes, I guess. But I predict that you, like me, see value in the Atlanta Falcons as two and a half point dogs on the road against Washington. Uh, Atlanta is fighting to stay alive at three and four in the tough NFC South. They need this win. And I think this is the week that Washington, as you said last week, uh, doesn't know what to do with five and two. Uh, The Giants were simply too hopeless to beat them, but I don't think Atlanta will be. I expect the Falcons to win outright. Uh, As an Eagles fan, I sure hope they do. Uh, But I also like that I'm getting two and a half points, so I'm taking the Falcons. Uh, Sticking with the NFC South, I like the Panthers, favored by five and a half at home against the Bucs. Carolina is clicking. Cam Newton is playing well. They're 4-0 at home this year. Tampa just benched their quarterback. I don't expect this game to be very close. Next up, the game of the week, maybe the game of the year so far, the Rams at Saints. Uh, You predicted incorrectly how I would handle this one, John. Um, I'm going with the Saints here. Uh, I can't believe that this opened with the Saints, two-and-a-half-point dogs at home. Uh, To me, this is close to a pick'em. The Rams haven't been nearly as dominant the last month as they were the first month of the season. I think the pressure of being undefeated is maybe starting to get to them a little. Uh, it's sort of like the, the Patriots back in their 16-0 season. As the season went on, they had to sweat out more and more close games. I think the Saints at home are the team to snap the streak or or at least keep it within a point or two. Uh, and if I'm wrong, then I guess that's good for my Todd Gurley MVP bet. Um, and my last one here, the Cowboys remain a public team. They always get a point or two that they don't deserve. Four-point favorites at home against the Titans. I think it's too much. I like the Titans to cover and quite possibly win outright on the road. So my five picks are Chiefs, Falcons, Panthers, Saints, and Titans. What are yours? 
That sounds good. Um, well, I'm going to start off with the Bears minus 10 over the quarterbackless Bills. Um, I think the Bills are starting to absorb their hapless fate and and make their peace with it. They're going through the five stages, and uh, uh, that's the end of it. I don't, I don't see a lot of fight left in them. Yeah. Uh, second, uh, Vikings giving six and a half to the Lions. Um, the Vikings had the hiccups early in the year, but we, we remember that they were going to be a good team, and they are a good team. And I think it's it's time they got to hit the accelerator. And I think the Lions just showed last week they're not ready for prime time. Uh, third, indeed, I have the Falcons with two and a half over the Redskins. Uh, it was, you know, showed no no sign of eagerness to beat even the hapless Giants. Um, Falcons had the better pedigree in recent years, and they, and as you say, they need the game far more. I expect an outright win for the Falcons. Also, um, number four, Seahawks giving two and a half to the Chargers. I I want to believe in the Chargers. Uh, they finished on a quiet nine and three run last season, so you you throw that in combined with the strong start this year, very impressive. But you know, right when they get to this point, where now they can show something that they're really to be taken seriously, they just don't win that game. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to win this one either. Okay. Uh, lastly, uh, Saints are getting two and a half uh, from the Rams, uh, and I'm with you on that. You know, rare's the team, really just Belichick and Brady Patriots pretty much uh, uh, that keep winning games no matter what, even though they did struggle late in the 16-0 and season, but they still would win. Um, the Rams know they may be a dopey kick returner fumble away late from losing to the Packers last week, and, and uh, it's kind of hard for them to convince themselves, yeah, we're undefeated, we're unbeatable, they were – pretty beatable um so the pressure's on the rams for once and i I don't think they're ready all right so we have uh two shared picks and no head-to-heads we're we're friends this week yeah there we go all right well that'll do it for this episode of gamble on thanks to all of you for listening you can find me on twitter at eric raskin and john at bergen brennan and follow us bets at us underscore bets Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, over to you to take us out. Let's do this. Uh, Okay, everybody, gamble on.